When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hello, Dr. Santos here, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. This is really bothering me, Santos. I cannot carve head. I, you can't just like cold open from a conversation. Disagree. <laughs> Disagree. Every open to this show for seven years has been a cold open. We can't, you can't, because it's talking about, we're talking about wood carving, not actually carving into heads. <laughs> yeah. I, I just want to say I've picked up whittling as a hobby because I'm 40 mm. and officially old, a geriatric millennial, apparently. <laughs> yeah. And... And I've really been putting a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears into into this project. And and when I say blood, I, well, now I've got safety gloves. Yeah, and yeah. I figured as I was thinking about how much blood, sweat, and tears I've put into not only that project, but this podcast, that it was a good time to focus our bi-monthly, everybody's favorite, that's right, another cold, <laughs> open, terrible segue. It's time for this week's... Journal Club! Yay! The articles are themed around blood, spit, and tears. And maybe a bonus fluid. Maybe a bonus fluid, we'll see. Yeah, yeah, you skipped from the sweat to the spit, which is totally acceptable. Surprisingly little research going on in sweat, Santosh. Yeah, we tried for a good long while in terms of using it to get sugar uh, you know, kind of quantitation of sugar to, to help people with diabetes so they wouldn't have to prick their finger. Um, and I, I think we tried a couple of different things dealing with sweat. 
for diagnostic purposes. And it turns out that it's just too messy. Ew. I mean, not, not in that sense, but <laughs> it doesn't, it doesn't stay consistent even from sample to sample in order to give us like a good clean, you know, target of, of how, how to use it. So the, the science is messy, not just the fluid. Yeah, so so let's get around to talking about blood, spit, and tears, plus minus mm. bonus bodily fluids. Yeah. <laughs> so in our first article, it's been, oh, I don't know, a hot minute since we've talked about COVID for a while. Wait, what? <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure you've all forgotten about it by now. Oh, yeah, it's it's old news, Josh. I am going to bring your attention back to it briefly because a new study has come out that have shown that your blood type may have some small effect on your susceptibility to infection with COVID. Um, and determine whether or not you experience a mild or more severe form of the disease. Now, Folks who have type O blood, or specifically O negative, have Mm -hmm. a slightly lower risk of infection with uh, COVID than those with other blood types. And the opposite end of the spectrum, people with B plus blood were twice as likely to get infected compared to those with O negative, which tells me that at B plus, you guys really need to work harder, study more, and achieve higher. (laughs) Uh, be positive, meaning like they're positive for the recent. I want them to be positive in their studying so they can do better on their blood tests. You're not going to let me win on this, are you? There is no way you're going to get out of this without terrible puns. But okay, yeah. So let's let's talk about very briefly the ABO blood groups. We'll revisit that, and Mm -hmm. then we can talk about this specific study and how they determined uh, how your blood type may affect your infectivity or your susceptibility to infection. Yeah. So uh, to start with, in terms of blood groups, we, we have the red blood cell. And the red blood cell is, uh, it's a fairly interesting blood cell because it doesn't have a nucleus on the inside. So there's no DNA instructions. When the red cell matures, it actually dumps its nucleus. So it's basically just a sack for carrying hemoglobin and some fluids. Stop. I know some people yeah. I could say the same. Just there a sack are. for just a sack for carrying fluids. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> so yeah, it, you know, it's got that kind of donut shape. It's biconcave, not really with a hole in the middle, but you've got this sack of fluid and full of hemoglobin, you know, so you can carry all your oxygen. But on the surface, it's got quite a few little indicators still indicating that it is your blood rather than somebody else's. And we have a couple of major determinants, which are really, really important for us as doctors, especially if we're giving a transfusion and we don't want to cause a bad reaction. But in truth, there's like actually hundreds of different types of antigens that can be on a red blood cell. Um, But one of the, or sorry, two of the ones that we care about are the ABO type, you know, do you have an A antigen, a B antigen, uh, or none, neither of those, or which both. is O, or you can have both, AB, and then a rhesus 
uh, antigen, which is so-called because it was originally discovered like rhesus monkeys. And then we found out that we had some of our own, but you can be rhesus antigen positive or rhesus antigen negative. So you can have AB positive blood, O negative, uh, and you know a lot of combinations of those. So though that type is most important when we're giving something like a transfusion or even like an organ donation to make sure that you match up and that your uh, plasma doesn't attack their blood and the blood that you're being given doesn't attack you. Um, but it seems like, yeah, it, it has some determination on like inflammatory states you know, it, w whether you're susceptible to certain types of infection. It's not a very, very clean statistical correlation, but it does seem to influence stuff. Yeah, I, I'm always surprised when we do find something new tied to to blood groups. They're They're connected to a shocking amount of different things, and we keep uncovering new ones. And none of them are particularly influential, but they are interesting. So yeah. in this in this study, researchers at the University of Toronto looked at the prevalence of COVID infection as well as the severity, um, meaning illness or death, in 225,000 patients who had their blood group tested, who in between January 2007 and December 2019, and those same people were then subsequently tested for COVID between January 15th and June 30th of 2020. So this is a retrospective analytical study. They didn't do anything. There's no experimental model. They simply said, these people had their blood group tested at this time, and they also went for COVID tests. And let's see if there's any overlap. After they accounted for other risk factors like cardiac disease, kidney disease, cancer, age, things like that, they looked at the relative risk for each blood group. Now, along the way, they built a fun little chart, which the American Red Cross looks at blood type and the population. And just for funsies, um, the most common blood types in Caucasians uh, and are about 37% of Caucasians have O positive blood and another 33% have A positive blood. Among African Americans, the most common blood type is O positive with about 47% of the population. Uh, and again, A positive is the next most common at 24%. Among Hispanics, it's even higher. 53% of people of Hispanic descent have O positive blood. Less than 25 of them have A. And Asians come in at about the same as Caucasians with 39%. So O positive tends to be the most common, at least among the Red Cross blood types. It's, it's useful for us when we're kind of estimating you know, oh, what's going to be the best, you know, kind of compatible blood if we're on a shortage or something like this? Yeah. So after these researchers looked at all the different other disease characteristics, according to the results, people with O negative blood had about a 2% risk of becoming infected with COVID, which is the lowest unadjusted probability out of all the blood groups. The right. highest probability of infection was among the B-positive group with about 4%. Um, 
And that also held true with severity. So if you had O and you got COVID, you were more likely to have a less severe case. Now, you can't just change your blood type. And B positive is a very rare blood type. It's in about 9% of Caucasians, 18% of African Americans, 9% of Hispanics, and 25% of Asians, which also kind of matches up with some of the severities. Now, again, there's a little bit of confusion here because... African-Americans and Asians have different health risks as populations than Hispanics and Caucasians do, and some of those health risks may contribute to the severity of COVID disease. That said, it did seem that if you had B-positive blood, you were simply at a higher risk of having more problematic outcomes. Yeah, this is really cool, Josh. They broke this down by age group. You know, they put the the ABO groups in there and they said, oh, you know, what about if you have age less than 70? They did statistical regressions, really, to try to control for all of the other variables that they looked for, right? So they looked for gender, the area income um, that they were in, so their socioeconomic status, if they were pregnant, rural residents, um, and then, you know, if they had any uh, conditions prior to having COVID. So if they had asthma or cancer, or if they've had a heart attack or stroke. So they kind of worked through all of these different variables, you know, in this kind of statistical model to try to isolate this variable. And just to be very honest, um, it's not impossible, but it is a difficult thing to do. And this conclusion shouldn't be taken as like, absolute gospel with a retrospective cohort like this. That said, even though this individual study has a lot of things that don't make it suspect, but at least make it with a grain of salt, um, this finding has come up over and over and over again. There was a study by Danish scientists who looked at about 473,000 COVID patients with a control Mm -hmm. group of 2 million. And they found, again, fewer infected people with blood type O and more with AB or AB. Uh, A study by researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital looking at patients in Italy and Spain found that type O had a 50% lower risk of needing intubation or supplemental oxygen. Another study from April 2020 found that of patients in New York City, again, a lower proportion would be expected that a lower proportion than would be expected had type O blood. And early in the pandemic, a study of over 2,100 patients in Wuhan, which was not peer-reviewed, still replicated that same. People with type O blood had a lower risk of infection with this particular one. So we're seeing this finding come up over and over again. And even with a selection bias, you know, only people who are infected with COVID are being tested or receiving blood, It's more than I think can be accounted for from just coincidence. This actually is, uh, it's emblematic of other studies that we have seen in the past. Now, COVID has kind of just unveiled a lot of things that we were learning about the inflammatory system and our immune systems over time. But it's really interesting. Um, There have been other articles in terms of ABO blood groups and rheumatic diseases, so autoimmune diseases. And, you know, same kind of thing that, you know, what are the most common blood types that you see associated with a particular autoimmune disease? Um, And, you know, you do find differences across them 
Um, not all consistent, you know, that like, oh, uh, type O has less inflammation or type A has more inflammation, anything like that. But yeah, this is, it, it's yet another piece of information that those ABO blood types are not just an antigen to kind of tell self from other um, in, in that sense that there, there may be another link here to our inflammatory system or immune system overall. You could also make the argument that as type O negative is your blood group actually lacking two of these identifying factors, that makes it harder for the immune system to kind of attack yourself for this auto-infection. So lacking these two factors may be what's providing the protective effect, not necessarily anything else. So it's an interesting area for further study. I don't know what we would necessarily do with that information. As I said, you can't just change your blood group. It's pretty much the one you're assigned at birth. That's what you get. (laughs) No, but I think that if we could isolate uh, what exactly is the risk factor, like what is it about type O that is protective or what is it about type B or, you know, rhesus positive blood that makes you more vulnerable uh, to severe infection, um, I think we could actually work on tracking down that kind of, you know, the, the source of that, um, yes, you know, make drugs against it, you know, to protect ourselves and, uh, you know, develop more targeted therapies. But I think more so, Josh, is that we could uh, develop a prognostic model that could include this. So meaning that, like, if you checked everything about a patient, including their blood type, um, or, or whatever is the, you know, behind this blood type, kind of thing is that you can get a much, much better idea of like how well or how poorly your patient is going to fare and how aggressive you have to be with their treatment. Okay. So, you know, diagnostic prognostic may be useful. So that's, that's our blood. Now let's uh, move on to the next fluid. After, after I've cut myself, at least the first couple times I was learning this hobby. um, Mm, Wood carving, just to make sure people are still paying attention. After I cut myself the first couple times in my new hobby, um, mm-hmm. my dog would kind of wander over and, and kiss the boo-boos away. And, yeah. <laughs> and it got me thinking, you know, what was the very first medical treatment most of us ever received? It was, you know, we'd fall down, we'd skin our knee, and we'd get a kiss from our respective parents or pets, or maybe you'd just kiss yourself. I don't know. I'm not here yeah. to judge. But yeah. it does wonder like you know oh well do you feel better and very often we would which certainly would have some placebo effect but could there be any actual science behind the idea of a kiss making a injury better well the u.s national institute of health actually did a study on how and why wounds in your mouth heal faster than a cut on your skin think about it you eat a a hot piece of pizza or a hot pocket or something like that, and you burn the roof of your mouth. And Mm. it's not like you'll never be able to taste anything again. Um, If you get a, if you get a second degree burn on the roof of your mouth by the next day, you know, you're doing all right. You get a second degree burn on your skin. That's a lot more serious. Does your mouth have some magical healing factor? What's going on in there? That's not happening elsewhere. So to investigate this researchers made a small cut in the mouth and on the arm of a group of 30 healthy non-smoking people. 
I'm going to guess they were grad students because I can't imagine <laughs> anyone else being willing to be like, hey, can I just place a cut in your mouth? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Maybe one day, you know, long ago it was grad <laughs> students, but um, especially on interventional uh, things like this where you're, you know, you're on purpose causing harm, um, I'll almost guarantee that there was a pile of paperwork that they had to go through in order to approve this on ethics committee. <laughs> when they did this study, they found that the mouth wounds healed three to four times faster than the limb wounds. And they then re-examined the cuts two weeks following the injury. And mm -hmm. by just day three, the cut in the mouth was barely noticeable. This is really cool because on the, the figures that they have, they actually have the, uh, the measurement tools on there actually showing the wounds closing up. It's a little gross. It's a little gross, but it's pretty impressive nonetheless. It's like, oh, if I get an injury to my mouth, it starts healing up like the Wolverine. Yeah. <laughs> so well, what? Yeah, not as fast as the Wolverine, but yeah. Well, relatively speaking. Sure, sure. Compared to the rest of your body, you know, the mouth is really moving. So yeah. <laughs> what's what's contributing to this? Well saliva and i bet you're asking yourself what the hell does saliva do that's a great question huh? what does <laughs> saliva do well <laughs> so many things it contributes to the humid environment of the mouth you know inside your mouth it's a scorching 98 degrees <laughs> yeah 98.7 in my case but sure um and this humidity caused by the saliva and the moist environment, improves the function and the survival of inflammatory cells like neutrophils and leukocytes. It also mm -hmm. contains, and this was one of the things they discovered, growth factors that promote the proliferation of skin cells, and another factor called histatin, which encourages wound closure by boosting cell spread and migration. Of course, it can also help pH balance your mouth, protects against enamel, uh, contains various enzymes to digest food your saliva does a lot of work that we are just completely unaware of it's it was so much fun uh going through this because you know they had this um this transcriptional signature which they were doing so they were actually laying out what genes and uh rnas were actually being like kind of transcribed out and they showed uh, the the differential expression of a lot of these between the oral surface and the skin surface and yeah it's it's really neat so all these factors that are there in your mouth including the ones that are carried in saliva that just help you patch up faster and actually josh um in the mouth actually kind of in in one way suppress uh the immune system or i should say the inflammatory system to some extent so you don't get that like scarring scabbing we should note also that like oral mucosa is in and of itself the the cell structure um the the individual structure and how they get along together is you know has its own differences from the keratinocytes on skin cells in order to kind of further study this and and this would this could contribute to wound healing because these researchers, when they looked at some of these proteins being expressed in the mouth, and they then took the genes for those proteins and put them into mice, but for skin cells, and then they cut the mice, they noticed that all of a sudden 
the wounds on the mouse skin were healing just as rapidly as in the mouse. They used that one, and then they focused in on two factors. So SOX2, S-O-X-2, and PITX1, P-I-T-X1, which they determined to be really important in the uh, the expression of you know downstream factors that would promote healing. Um, so yeah, they helped overexpress SOX2 um, by actually treating. Well, this was kind of sad. They they actually made a cut in the poor little mouse. And then they treated um, with tamoxifen or with nothing. And the the uh, tamoxifen, which helped with SOX2 overexpression, um, healed a lot faster. So they they were actually able to narrow down, you know, the one particular factor, at least, or two particular factors, SOXX2 and PITX1 in the saliva and, you know, the, the one of the factors in your mouth that really do help. Uh, with the healing. Now, one of the cool things they did is they also looked at a group of patients, or I should say mouse patients. They looked at inflammatory skin disorders where this might be useful, such as psoriasis, dermatitis, skin hyperplasia. And because psoriasis has a very particular expression of signature of genes related to wound healing, they found that Wound-activated networks or psoriasis patients tend to have accelerated wound healing with reduced scarring, suggesting that some of these gene networks in the mouth are already present in people, but they are regulated differently in patients with disease conditions like this. So I didn't know that psoriasis patients had, you know, wounds on their skin that healed that fast. Although if you think about some of the scarring and keratinocytes, that does make sense. Has some really neat potential applications for wound care. And especially now that CRISPR is something in our toolbox, we are approaching the point where we may be able to give gene therapies to improve post-surgical wound healing or inflammatory condition style skin healing. And to that end, a different article, but still in our spit section uh (laughs) there is now a salivary wiki the the human salivary wiki the first of its kind focused on building data on the thousands of different proteins present in saliva about what you can pull out of the saliva and then how you can like put it online like a weird facebook bring me my internet spittoon As we said, saliva has a huge number of roles in the body, from initiating digestion to protecting against pathogens in the mouth. And because it's pretty easy to collect as bodily fluids go, it's a very (laughs) desirable source of diagnostic markers for, for example, tracking COVID-19. But despite this simplicity of collection, it's a pretty complex biological fluid, and we haven't linked all of the different things in it yet. We're still finding new stuff in our spit. So (laughs) 2000... I love that. In 2019, this project launched, and it has information about uh, proteins, genomes, transcription data, as well as on the different sugar molecules present on salivary proteins. And all new data goes through a team of curators, just like any wiki, which shows that all of it's accurate and scientifically sound. So you can't just 
you know, suddenly decide to edit it and say, you know, my spit has Lucky Charm acid spit. Yeah, <laughs> that was very, very strange for the choice. But yeah, it, uh, so, you know, you've got the genes in the human body, right? And then those genes transcribe RNA, translated into proteins. And so you can actually grab samples of any given tissue, fluid, whatever it is, in this case, it's saliva, and actually just break it down into those components. Now, it doesn't tell you necessarily like what's going on right off the bat, but it becomes a central repository for all of this knowledge and a cross-reference database. And Josh, this made me so happy because we actually have an AP Complexin database um, and so we have one for all eukaryotic path. Well, not all, but a bunch of eukaryotic pathogens called UPathDB, and then one specifically for Toxoplasma we call ToxoDB, and it is just like this. This is so so cool. Yeah, and the goal would be to slowly start building a selection of markers, or you know, a saliva bla- a saliva based platform of markers that can identify a multitude of diseases and allow for more non-invasive testing. Uh, A lot of times when somebody comes in with an infection, we have to send blood cultures, which take a while to grow out, as you've heard from our many 80 plagues episodes. Uh, Mm -hmm. You need specific kind of media. And even then, you know, you're looking at different antibiotics. So what if you could start diagnosing diseases simply by having somebody spit into a little collection tube and figure out, oh, you have this or you don't have this. That would be vastly superior to a lot of our diagnostic techniques now in terms of convenience, in terms of speed, and in terms of accessibility. Yeah, it's it's so neat because you can get that kind of protein signature, right? And if you had a database like this, you can use like additive and subtractive Uh, kind of analysis to be like, oh, you know what? All this stuff is normal. It's supposed to be in there anyway. You know, these are all salivary proteins. We understand. Oh, wait a minute. I see these proteins and these proteins and these proteins that uh, all, you know, together comes to like, you know, E. coli as like, oh my God, the guy might be septic with E. coli because it shouldn't be in the mouth. Yeah. So there's a lot of really cool ways that this could end up going. And I should probably mention who who sort of started this. And this is from our, our dental friends. Um, so the National Institute of Dental and Craniofacial Research is helping to support the human salivary proteome wiki, which makes sense <laughs> given that, you know, that's sort of their sphere of influence, as it were. <laughs> it is. So right now, they're up to seven institutions, 846 data sets, um, four different tissue types, Josh, in order to cross-reference. So, you know, from the the uh, submandibular and sublingual glands, there's a set of proteins from the parotid glands, just from whole saliva, just kapui like that. And then also from blood plasma, right? Because there's communication between the the plasma and uh, the saliva. So yeah, it's just even on the very front page, you've got these cool like cross-reference, which proteins are in what compartment and which ones are shared by which ones. 
Dude, this is so cool. I'm going to start browsing proteins. Sadly, it does not say how to submit your own saliva to the wiki. <laughs> no, so... no, no, no. So you, you'd have to be in one of the contributing institutions that are actually, you know, putting data into this and, and building the wiki. So, yeah, it's, this isn't like a one, come one, come all. But in terms of doing a protein search, yes, anyone can search. Yes, anyone can search, but you can't just go up and casually spit on a scientist. We do not approve that. <laughs> Let, let's, let's move on. So now we've, we've covered blood, spit. <laughs> How about yes. tears? We should do a tear study. Are there any good tear mm. studies? We tried to use it for diabetes testing. We tried it for inflammation testing. Uh, yeah, maybe infection testing? Infection testing. Okay. All right. What about, oh, I don't know. If only there was some kind of infection we could test for. <laughs> oh, oh, God damn it. Golly gee willikers. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like something that's really relevant right now and... Oh, I mean, it doesn't have to be relevant, but if, at least if there were enough of a sample size, like a large enough group. Yeah, like if it was something that was just sweeping the world right now. Yeah, uh, where are we <laughs> going to find something like that? Josh, Josh, how long do you think we could stretch out this bit? <laughs> uh, at least as long as COVID's been around. Yeah. Oh, oh! <laughs> Segway master, ladies and gentlemen. Yes, yes. If you're all standing up applauding at your various desks and stuff while listening to this podcast, you're doing the right thing. I I <laughs> will never cave to making good segues. This is <laughs> till the day this show finally collapses <laughs> under the weight of its own terrible puns and and transitions. But moving on to our study on tears, Dr. Nazari from the University of Michigan ophthalmology, says although his team is not the only one studying the presence of COVID-19 in tears, what makes their research unique is the focus on the collection process. And they're using microcapillary tubes, or basically, as you mentioned, Santosh, the tiny tubes that you use to soak up blood after a finger prick for uh -huh. diabetes, yeah. they're using those exact same tubes to absorb Pure tears, pure, unfiltered yeah. human sadness. Oh. <laughs> well, no, I mean, you could be crying from laughter or joy, so, you know. Not for infectious purposes. <laughs> That's true. Okay, so, yeah, you're, you're drawing fluid up into a capillary tube. Got it, got it. And most of the time when you collect tear samples, uh, it's done with cotton swabs or a little bit of paper, but those materials can inhibit the virus or compromise the yield or amount needed to diagnose something. So the idea is Dr. Nazari and his team are trying to determine uh, whether or not they can successfully use essentially finger stick technology on tiers to diagnose viral levels and then run molecular and diagnostic tests on it. Because again, imagine you simply walk in and instead of shoving a cotton swab up into your brain and rooting around in there to look for COVID or using our PCR tests, which are much more prevalent now, you could just cool. kind of, you know, blink a few times, get a little bit of tear from the corner of your eye and still have that rapid response in terms of diagnosis. Uh, but the best part, one of my favorite parts of this is the grant that they applied for that is paying for this research. It's a COVID grant, Collaborative Outcomes, Visionary Innovation and Discovery. <laughs> 
All right. Okay. Someone actually named something appropriate and cool looking. So you may be asking, listen, we've already got a bunch of ways to diagnose COVID, you know, hard fought and won. Why do we need another? Like why, why even go down this route? Um, And Again, that's because fast and reliable diagnosis of COVID or really any infection is a big issue in containing diseases. And the current way of collecting samples with swabs to the back of your throat isn't really ideal because you reflexively want to sneeze or cough, which can spread airborne or droplet viruses and then put other people at risk. So, Mm -hmm. you know, crying is not contagious, Yes, at least as a physiological response. So to ensure that a positive test is accurate in this ongoing study, Dr. Nazari says they're going to collect tear samples as well as the traditional nasopharyngeal swab samples. And if both come back positive at a similar rate, they will then have enough evidence to begin using tears as a new way to diagnose COVID at a record pace. So they want to develop essentially a small handheld machine, which is, again, the same as the diabetic finger stick, but you just hold it up to your eye and it takes a little bit of tear and then goes, hey, you have it, you don't. And if they can make it work with this virus, then theoretically we could make it work with many viruses. And who knows, blood draws could start being much less a thing known in modern medicine. This is so neat. I, I absolutely love it. They are going to have to tweak and twist because, you know, accuracy of something like in the nasal passage, especially far back in the nasopharynx, that's a relatively closed off area um, when you're talking about the outside environment. So you don't risk the type of contamination that you can get on the skin or out of tears that, that's just open to the outside air. So There is going to have to be a threshold of like, okay, well, is the infection really there? Did we catch a contaminant? And probably same thing, Josh, with like processing the material and and making sure that uh, when you're collecting the tear that, you know, you don't touch that instrument everywhere because, you know, you can accidentally pick up, you know, another pathogen or something that interferes with your assay someplace else. But yeah, all that being said, like these are the same things uh, we overcame a lot of the time for doing the nasal swab PCRs. So I'm excited. This would be wonderful. And you know what? If COVID finally, finally blows over at some point, um, it would be a great one for like, you know, whatever next disease comes around. (laughs) I know that sounds horrible. Um, But yeah. So... We've got a little bit of extra time. I'm going to throw in a bonus fluid. I'll let you guess which one. Um, (laughs) Okay. Go ahead. So traditionally, we use a lot of lab-based tests, but what if we could use a portable microfluidic device linked to a mobile app to diagnose, oh, I don't know, your infectious disease. How about gonorrhea? Let's go with gonorrhea. <laughs> Let's go with gonorrhea. I mean, that's a decent choice. But to be fair, there have been a lot of like bedside rapid tests that have been developed. But this one, it is quite different in that it's like linked straight up to a phone app. Right. Well, a lot of the the ones you're talking about, Santosh, still require a hospital lab handy. Right. Right. Um, which isn't always going to be available in some of the areas of the world with poor access to healthcare. So leader, study lead, Sa Hui Wang has developed a system called Prompt Portable Rapid 
on cartridge magnetofluidic purification and testing. Oh, that just felt good to say. And this device can also tell if frontline antibiotics will be effective against the specific gonorrhea strain detected. And that's kind of a new thing to see. You get both the antibiotic resistance as well as the diagnosis in the same mobile app all at once. Nice. Very, very nice. So boom. So gonorrhea is a sexually transmitted disease, which affects about 87 million people around the world, something like that. Um, But the problem (laughs) is, is it's also now becoming one of the most antibiotic resistant bacteria. We're seeing strains of super gonorrhea that can't be treated with any antibiotics. So this particular device won't do anything about treating them, but it'll help you identify which ones can be treated in the clinic versus which ones will be required to go to a hospital. So cost-effective technologies like Prompt that can diagnose the condition could be transformative in these low-resource areas. So essentially, you get a little swab of the patient's sample fluid, which is mixed with magnetized (laughs) particles in a tube, and then that's loaded into a cartridge, and this whole device runs on a 5-volt battery. (laughs) <laughs> and this, this five volt battery can run 40 cycles of a PCR reaction in, and then transmits the results to your mobile phone. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, I'm, I'm the fact that we can uh, amplify a resistance marker like this and not just say, okay, yeah, uh, you know, plus minus gonorrhea, but actually, you know, rapid nucleic acid amplification and then accurately say that, you know, you, you've got a you've got a resistant strain, that's absolutely amazing. And I, this is one example of other uh, diseases where we're getting there, Josh. Where you know um, I used uh, bedside, uh, you know, kind of in the field. Um, it wasn't microfluidics; it was like a lateral flow, almost like a little pregnancy test um, to test for HIV. Uh, when I was out in Botswana. Um, you know, testing people. So, but these are becoming more and more and more accessible for cheap and for, um, you know, small, like energy costs too. That's really, really huge. The fact that you can use a five volt, that's all. Uh, To your point, Santosh, they did device, they did test the prompt device in the field and it was deployed to two places that are apparently (laughs) overrun with gonorrhea, Kampala, Uganda and Baltimore. (laughs) to be very fair um you do want to try to use this in as many different areas as possible and i'm fairly sure that the reason that they use that was because they have like a partnership (laughs) with a site in uganda and uh like an institution i'd say they have a number of partnerships based on the amount of gonorrhea oh oh, come on (laughs) but the device the device was found to accurately detect the most common strains with a accuracy rate of 97 percent even more impressive it was a hundred percent accurate in detecting whether or not that strain would respond to the antibiotic ciprofloxacin so it's only one antibiotic but it can tell you with dead certainty whether or not that antibiotic will work so they expect to see this product in the market in two to three years which okay in terms of medical devices is light speed yeah yeah when we think of usually it's like a decade to get from the lab to the 
to the bedside. This is pretty good. Uh, so that's it for this week's Journal Club. But before we do our outro, Santosh, I'm going to issue a challenge to you for our, our next episode. Okay. We're going to do medicine from a hat. Meaning, oh, okay, yeah, okay. I have a number of words here in this little hat before me, and I'm going mm-hmm. to draw them out, and you're going to have a full week to find a way to connect this word to any kind of medical discovery, treatment, disease, and figure out. Okay, gotcha. All right, so you have this long to discover, Santosh, what you can about. Mm. Chainsaws. Almost uh, certainly I could figure that one out. Okay, got you. Okay. Um, carrot. Uh, do they all have to be connected or not necessarily? They don't have to be connected to each other, but they are all okay. connected to some kind of medical discovery or treatment. Got it. Okay. So of the five words, chainsaw, uh-huh. carrot, okay, Brazil snake, that's two words. We'll just say snake. Uh, chainsaw, carrot, snake. Okay, gotcha. Bumblebee. Bumble. Oh, there's tons on that. Although, uh, quite a bit of it. It's going to be quackery, but we'll we'll try. We'll try. And our last word is vomitorium. V- <laughs> Which is actually not the thing that we think it is. Ah, let's not spoil it before the episode. <laughs> um, and uh, we, we want to kind of stick with uh, nouns here, probably. Josh, let's try... Okay, let's go bread, uh, garbage, and uh, let's go with lake. Okay. Yeah. So... Because that's that's fairly like off the medical path, but you know we have to find out. So, listeners, in preparation for our our upcoming summer episodes, our you know when we like to let loose and have fun, as opposed <laughs> as opposed to our strict, mm. our strict regimented, method, yeah, our strict regimented yeah. episodes. Yeah, um, we're gonna have some Mad Libs episodes where Doctor Santosh and I will each be presenting short stories about medical discoveries related to the following words for Mm -hmm. me bread garbage lake shopping mall queen or engine Mm -hmm. and santosh your words i got chainsaw carrot snake bumblebee vomitorium at least two of those are transformers (laughs) (laughs) so uh, tune in if you'd like to help us out feel free to give us hints or heckles on twitter or facebook or any social media site you like Mm -hmm. and that's it for this week tune in next time when we play medical mad libs as always we love to hear your comments questions and feedback this show is produced by me with a lot of help from dr santosh and friends If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Mm -hmm. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, get your vaccine. And when you've done all of those, happy travels.
Bye, everybody. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.